Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome again today to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where we get to talk all things life, leadership, lessons therein. And we tend to do that in the spheres of books, of pastors, of comedy, of music, of sports, of great testimonies. The list goes on and on. And I often say it's great to have whoever the guest is going to be, but I think the guy I've got on today may be the person I've known longer than anybody else ever as a guest. And we're up into uh, probably by the time this releases, we're well over 80 podcasts now. But I have my friend, former neighbor, pastor for 30 plus years, now doing some very cool new stuff, Grant Edwards from Springfield. Yeah, welcome, everyone. Welcome, Grant. How big does this fit in your 2023 when you think about being on a Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast, where does that wow. rank? It's an honor. And, and in a sense, since I've known you more than anybody else, perhaps I should be interviewing you. I feel like I better not get goofy on this one. I joked with one of our friends that this may be the first time we get kicked off the airwaves. So I hope I'm good because you could probably wrap me out on some things. Yeah, you used to live next to me. I was there when you were first when you first started dating your wife. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I'll tell you what, kind of saying this to be funny, but it's also true. And I haven't said this in a long time, but you know, one of the great things about being next door to you, and I was very single at the time and doing Young Life. And when I first started living with your uh, sister and her family, I was not dating anybody. And I thought, man, God must know I need some protection for purity because uh, living next door to my pastor is going to probably keep me in line. And I got to be honest with you. Um, Living next to you as your pastor really helped increase my my faith and prayer. <laughs> there is no doubt that that should be a true response. I, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Well, Grant, let's get into your testimony. You got a great testimony. I've heard it many, many, many times over the year, and it's very timely based on this movie that was recently out. So tell us your testimony. Well, I have a unique testimony in the sense that I became a Christian and a pastor in the same month. And now, That's not typically the way God works, but I did become a Christian in the Jesus movement. New Year's Eve, 1971-1972, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior and was baptized in the Atlantic Ocean. I was in Daytona Beach, Florida. And uh, previous to that, I had made a decision, this is way back in the fifth grade, to not be a Christian. First day of fifth grade, I looked around the room. And I realized in that class that I wouldn't have any any friends if I was faithful to Jesus. So I just turned my back on Jesus. And through my middle school years and through my high school years, I uh, wasn't faithful to God. I turned away from him, did everything. When I graduated from high school. I started hitchhiking around the country and basically got into drugs, got into paranoia. And I was lost, almost suicidal. So New Year's Eve. 1971-1972, I found myself at a Jesus house in Daytona Beach, Florida, and I accepted Jesus, was baptized in the Atlantic Ocean, 
And then I felt I should come back to Springfield, Ohio, which I did. And uh, two weeks later, I was in my parents' basement in Springfield, and I had uh, asked some of my friends from high school to come in, and uh, I just shared with them my testimony. When I was finished, 16 of them accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and within three months, 100, and within three years, 500. So in a sense, I was a Christian just two weeks when I first shared Jesus, 16 accepted Christ. And that's literally where our church began. And I was a senior pastor there, or at least the ministry leader for 49 years. So the original name of the church was the One Way House, which I always <laughs> love that name. And yeah. isn't it true, you know, or you knew, or you had some level of relationship with Rich Mullins? Yes. Um, Rich and I were friends. Uh, I mean, friendly. Um, it was the same group. We, I was in the same group that uh, ran around with Rich. Uh, he went to Bible college with me. And also he was connected with the Jesus House in Cincinnati. You know, we we knew not we knew one another well enough. It's just we weren't best friends. I and mean, we had a lot of conversations together. So for people who don't know Rich Mullins, he was a, one of the most significant Christian musicians of all time, songwriters, flawed man. When I was on sabbatical a couple years ago, I read a book that he that was written about him. It just blew my mind. It was an incredible book. I don't know if you've seen this. I'm, I think it's going out today on our Gathering Facebook page. There's a video that just came out that was found somehow back in, what would that have been, the 90s or 2000s, whatever it was, before he passed away. You mean away. for Richard Mullins? I yeah. think it was in the 80s and the 90s, yeah. So, okay, so I think it was in the 90s. It was right after the uh, Oklahoma City bombing, and he went as a surprise. He went, They wanted to go bless somebody as they were kind of coming back together as a community, and it was the church that Craig Rochelle was on as staff. So to see Craig Rochelle introduce him in this video with a suit, and he doesn't look like, I mean, you could tell it's Craig Rochelle, but he's not nearly as buff, and he's a young version of himself, and then he introduces Rich. Mullins, who had a guitar player, and they led worship at this kind of old school Methodist church for about 35 minutes on a Sunday. And somehow this was just recently found, but it blew my mind like, wow, this is, I mean, new video of Rich Mullins doing a little mini concert worship time at a church in Oklahoma years ago. So, yeah, you know, his uh, song, Our God is an Awesome God, I think the statistics are it was the number one worship song used in American churches for like 15 years. And uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I, I know it was extremely popular. And I was in Siberia once, and as I walked into the sanctuary in Russian, of course, they were singing, Our God is an Awesome yeah. God. That's well, the reach that he had. Well, in my early days of fellowship, I think I started going there in 91. And, uh, I mean, we did a lot of Rich Mullen songs back in the day in early sure. days of fellowship mm -hmm. on 424 South Fountain Avenue. So one of the things I did not include in here, but I, I really feel like I want to talk to you about it briefly, is your parents uh, have a significant, significant impact on your life. I had the pleasure when I lived next door to you to live upstairs while your dad lived downstairs at your sister's right. house. Mm -hmm. And I remember the day like it was yesterday, years ago, when your mom was in that car wreck and passed away. Talk about through your times when you were going after it with the Lord and even some rebellious times when you weren't, the impact your parents made on your life. Uh, my parents had a great marriage. I never heard them arguing. Uh, I never, they had disagreements, uh, but I never really heard them arguing. My dad got up every morning and read the Bible and prayed. My mom got up uh, and prayed. Uh, they were just godly people. I respected their Christian faith. 
after I decided not to follow Jesus, I was, of course, doing my own thing in high school. And I had to walk by her bedroom to get outside uh, to go about whatever I was going to do on a Friday or Saturday night. And she had strategically placed herself so she would have her knees bowed and praying next to her bed with the door open so I could see her as I was leaving praying. And I knew she was praying for me. So that's uh, kind of how we got started. The ministry, you know, I was really radically saved. Uh, I got up in the morning after I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That would have been, uh, of course, January 1st, 1972. And uh, I was just really afflicted with paranoia and confusion. And I just prayed to God. I said, God, please set me free. And it was just like instantaneously, that's what God did. And so I was excited that even though I was faithless to Jesus all those years in middle school and high school, he was faithful to me when I accepted him and returned to him. And of course, the first thing that I did when I came back was tell my parents that I had accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and also that I wanted to start sharing Jesus with my friends, which I began doing. And the ministry grew so quickly, we were meeting with hundreds of of youth in my parents' basement, and you know the parking all up and down the street was taken, and my parents were just all in with this, and even the cops were called, and I remember one day my dad walked into the midst of a prayer meeting of like 60 hippies in his basement. We were all praying, and of course the, the police came and thought there was some type of a drug party going on, and so my dad just brought them down the basement, and that sheriff's deputies they didn't know what to do when they walked into the middle of a, a bunch of hippies praying with one another. So, yeah, I mean, they were pretty much a part of what we were doing. And uh, the interesting thing was, is that when we bought our first ministry building, they were older and never had make, made a lot of money, but they were so into faith and sharing Jesus that they both emptied out their lifetime retirement account to buy our first ministry building. You know, that was the type of impact that they had in my life. You know, it's it's interesting because I one of the memories I have of living in that house was when Jeremy would come over, who was a close friend of mine, and watch him kind of mess with your dad because your dad's hearing had really gotten bad and he he had trouble right. hearing. And your your, your dad was so funny because you talked to him and he'd answer some questions, but it may be completely different than what you asked him. He'd be talking about something completely right. off just because he had trouble hearing. But you know, there was a simplicity to your dad that really left a mark on me even in those later years, because you would see this rhythm, this routine, sitting in the one chair, getting up, doing his devotion. I mean, whatever it was, there was still a very simplistic thing that you're like, he's just living for what really matters in life. He's not getting caught up in, you know, whatever that's goofy or, you know, sticking his face on a news channel all day and listening to what, you know, political talking heads in D.C. or New York are living. So it's, it's fun. I feel like a lot of us, through your ministry, get to live off your parents' legacy, which, you know, you probably know that better than I do. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. They're great parents, Jeff. So if you were being invited into Hollywood as an expert and you were to give critique or evaluation of the Jesus Revolution movie, because you lived it just on a different coast, it'd be kind of fun to talk about. Tell us what was 100% spot on accurate about that movie in your experience and what was maybe not as accurate. Give us a couple minutes of that. I did, and my ministry does have direct uh, influence and impact from what happened there at Calvary Chapel. Uh, there was a, a couple by the name of John and Minnie who were 
accepted Jesus and were actually baptized in those baptismal scenes that you see in the movie, the Jesus Revolution. And they got in their VW microbus and drove across country. And they were the ones who started the ministry in Daytona that I came, eventually came to. So, you know, my ministry is a direct result of Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee. I think if I could use the phrase tonal quality of the movie is true. In that movie, you see a bunch of hippies living together. And that's what happened in my ministry and around the country with uh, Jesus people. We kind of found houses to live together. Uh, we lived in community. We worked together. We did a lot of street ministry. Another thing that happened was this exponential growth. When I would go out witnessing, I would find that about 50% of the people I shared Jesus with would come to know Jesus. So a lot of it is very true. I mean, there was just something that God did. I, I think some estimate that there were three to five million young people that spontaneously became Christians over a four or five year period of time. And I think it's more like 10 to 12 million. Wow. And there was not a clear leader. The movie sort of depicted the Jesus movement as starting in Los Angeles and then kind of concluding in Los Angeles. And it was basically a little bit about Chuck and, and Lonnie. And, and really, it was a movie about them. And you could reach some implications that I don't think the film actually portrayed, but you might have that assumption from watching the movie is that the Jesus movement started everywhere. It was going on in Upper State New York. It was going on in Florida and other locations. It was going on in Chicago. At the same time, what you see uh, in the Jesus Re revolution was going on in, in Los Angeles. It kind of was a spontaneous fire that just broke out all over the country. Sure. And so that movie, I don't think, did a good job of portraying that. But at least, you know, the young people come to know Jesus, um, the hippies, we used to call them straights. OK, so we go into and that that happened to me. There's a scene in the Jesus Revolution where they were not being accepted by Chuck Smith's church. And that happened with me several times. We go into a church and the people there uh, weren't very accepting of who we were. They thought we should dress up to come to church and cut our hair, uh, things like that. Yeah. You know. Yeah, we could talk probably about that all day. I better keep going because there's so much to cover here. But I'm going to guess, and I'm just picking random numbers here, probably from about 2000-ish on, you clearly were the longest standing, probably senior pastor in your role you know, at a good-sized church in Springfield, and, and I've referred to you, and I think I've heard other people say something like this, that you were Springfield, Ohio's pastor for quite a while there. And then in 2021, you handed it off to our good friend Jeremy Hudson. And, uh, you know, that was that was super interesting to see how, because it was talked about for a couple of years, you know, within the church. And I really wondered how that would go. I'm like, ooh, this is going to be interesting. And, you know, I have a bit of a relationship with Bob Russell and Dave Stone, those guys down in Louisville. And Bob wrote a book that I find very interesting, and it was called After 50 Years in Ministry, Seven Things I Do Differently and seven things I'd do the same. What would you say went really well in that transition? Because inevitably, we have pastors that listen to this. And what's maybe one thing you would do differently if you did that over again a couple years, three years ago, whatever? Well, I think that it's uh, very important that you have a plan from the beginning that's been well-researched. When I first started talking about secession, it seemed like everybody had an idea of the way it should go. And as I was listening to them, I was thinking, well, okay, uh, what experience do you have behind that idea? 
And so I spent about a year and a half just reading everything that I could on secession and retirement. And there was not a lot of resources in the church. I found most of my resources uh, from reading Harvard Business Review. They have about 1,100 case studies on how succession went, transferring of leadership in American corporations. And so a lot of what I found out about successful transferring of leadership I learned more from the secular world than I did from actual church world. And uh, one of the things that I quickly discerned was that a healthy organization does better if they bring and raise up leadership within, and an unhealthy organization does better if they bring somebody in from the outside. And so we were fortunate enough with the man who uh, succeeded me as being somebody that was in our church was well respected. And so it made the transition a lot easier. Yeah. Is there anything you would look back and you'd say, hey, if I was going to give somebody else advice doing something like this, here's something I would maybe do different? Well, as I have talked to pastors through the years on succession, one of the things that's very difficult for a pastor as he comes to the end of a particular ministry is that there has not been a lot of preparation for what they're going to do next. And so they find themselves disoriented. Also, unfortunately, uh, many pastors do not have a lot of financial wherewithal by which they can step forward and feel like they can be provided for. And so there may be this desire to just hang on to a ministry because they don't know what they'll do or even how they will provide for their family. And sometimes those types of decisions have to be made and thought about a decade or two or two before you actually leave a particular church. And so I, I don't know. I mean, that was all inherent in, in our ministry plan is working that through. But I know with some pastors, you have to make sure that those pastors and also myself, there's a time to leave when you've fulfilled your ministry and then you still have to depend upon God as you move forward. Well, I think for people who know you, and I've, I've had the pleasure of knowing you probably better than a lot, I think people who know you, one of the things that they would say about you that's a massive strength is you've been a good steward in about every way that that's possible. As a, you know, you've obviously got an entrepreneurial spirit about you that's been there as long as I've known you, and you're clearly a little bit more in that element now with where discipling another is, which we're going to get to in a moment. But I think you stewarding the way you have only allows us to be where it is kind of loose and light and not having to feel like you got to press and do things that some people might have to do, particularly when you're looking money and income and things like that. What do you, you know, one of the things you hear people talk a lot about with any job, and I like how you mentioned Harvard Business Review and some secular type of things, because we've seen church world really fail at succession planning, but we talk a lot about identity. Over half of your life, was the senior leader, senior pastor, head guy at fellowship. Did identity take a hit at all? Did you wake up, you know, as, as mornings and say, wow, I'm not Grant Edwards, senior pastor of fellowship? Or did, was that a struggle at all? Or did well, you... I, I think that uh, it would be disingenuous for me to say that it had no impact. Obviously, it did. But I also knew that uh, God wanted me to do something else. And that really helps if you know that God wants you to go in another direction. And, and moving into discipleship, Jeff, because I know that's something that we wanted to talk about. Uh, when I first became a Christian, I saw so many people come to know Jesus, but I also saw about 80% of them soon walk away from faithfulness. And uh, one of the unmentionable known secrets in the Christian faith is that the church is very good at winning 
uh, the lost, but not so good at keeping the saved. If you really study it out, uh, about 80% of those who accept Jesus walk away from faithfulness within the first three months. And I noticed that very early when I saw so many young people come to know Jesus. They were there, no greater feeling or experience seeing them come to know Jesus, then all of a sudden they're gone. And at first I thought something was wrong with me because I was a young Christian, young pastor. But then over the years, I realized that it wasn't me. It's what happens in the church around the world. And so my passion very early uh, in my ministry and throughout the 50 years was what's the solution to that? And of course, the solution to that has been given to us by Jesus when he said, go and make disciples. So I knew that the answer to the extreme walkaway rate of those who accept Jesus was discipleship. So it's been a 50-year adventure or discovery process for me is understanding exactly how you disciple new believers, how to be successful at it. Yeah. Do you remember the exact moment? I'm curious. Do you remember the moment when, because that was the language that was being used a lot. I remember Wally Martinson, particularly, who was a head elder at the time, saying when this is really going to be figured out and really be a buy-in thing will be when Grant realizes not what he's leaving behind, but what he's going to. If you would have had this drawn out on a whiteboard with a target, do you remember the moment when you're like, okay, here's what I'm going to? And what was that like? Uh, Yeah. Well, fascinating that my life message has been to follow the Great Commission, because what I found out is, is that if most new believers walk away from faithfulness in the first three months, then really it's most important, although there's many different things that you can say about discipleship, what we do in the first three months of a new believer's life is the most important, because if we don't get them established, then they're going to walk away. If we can get them discipled at the appropriate time, maybe 80% will stay faithfulness instead of walking away. That's been my focal point for my entire Christian life. And I was leading a tour right before COVID. I guess that would be, if I can get the the, the time frame right, that would have been March of 2020, just as COVID was hitting. Uh, I was in uh, leading a tour in Israel, and I our hotel is on the Sea of Galilee. And I got up one morning, and I was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and I felt the Lord tell me that I would spend the rest of my life developing the content that he had given to me. Well, he had given to me the Great Commission, And what was so um, impactful to me was that Jesus had first given the Great Commission on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So here he was in the same location saying, uh, you know, Grant, I want you to focus the rest of years that you have on the Great Commission. I mean, you know, just walking and keeping in step with the Holy Spirit in that moment was very helpful with succession. Sure. So I'm I'm curious, you really seem rejuvenated. I think about it's around you knows that. I think you've handed off and let go and been invisible where maybe it's best to be invisible, particularly with the church, more than I think maybe people would have thought. How does that work as far as looking at life right now, thinking about family, thinking about for you, the word community looks a lot different because it's not quite Springfield. It's more really outside Springfield in a lot of ways than it is inside Springfield. And even just the role at the church, has that been How's that kind of adjustment been? Like I said, especially with family being in the midst of this too, because you got growing, getting older grandkids as well now. Uh, Yeah, I mean, just carry on with discipleship, and then I'll come back a little bit to your question. When we first started really focusing, at least I did, on discipleship, there was just this very talented 
group of volunteers who saw the need to do disciple making and they came alongside of me. When I left that being a senior pastor, I, I left a sizable church with a sizable budget with a lot of buildings and a staff, and it was basically myself. But these volunteers came alongside me and we began making discipleship material that actually is working. And because of that, we have not been able to keep up with demand. In the last two years, our material has been translated into seven languages, and just dozens of churches have been calling and asking, hey, how do we do disciple-making? Because everybody knows that uh, disciple-making isn't happening, and the church is in some ways uh, struggling, and people who come to know Jesus aren't growing in Christ, and what can be done about that? And we have found that what we do, especially within the first three months, is very helpful. And I had this ministry that all of a sudden completely swamped my time. I didn't have, you know, sometimes they, people retire and they're sitting around for three months wondering what they're going to do with themselves. I mean, you know, I had maybe a week when I was wondering what I was going to do with myself. And then all of a sudden the floodgates opened. And maybe that's unique for me, but that's what happened. Well, I wonder with that, you know, it's funny, I'm thinking as you're talking, I've never thought about it this way, but I've heard you reference and you've already referenced it here, a little bit of all this content God had entrusted you with, and then that becoming, you know, the core and really the basis of, of discipling another. And it's gone through several reverberations between discipling another to first steps to conversations. It almost reminds me, I don't know if you've seen that. I wish I had it on me. The book cover for Jerry Seinfeld's book that came out a year or two ago. And he had all these little yellow sticky pads of notes he had over all these years. And then he took this picture right. of all these yellow sticky pads of notes. And this was his content. And he just made it a book. When I was early on in my fellowship days, back in the early nineties, I remember taking your class back then called integrity relationships. And it had a profound right. impact on me. And that yeah. became one piece of content tied into a whole bunch of other things that became discipling another. Can you speak to that yeah. a little bit? I mean, did you have to have a system to keep all that in place? I mean, how did you take that and pull that all together over the years and even more recently to make that something that was pretty manageable? Yeah. And, and if you don't mind me doing a little advertisement, uh, you can find out more about this content at www. Uh, DisciplingAnother.com, www.DisciplingAnother.com. Uh, what we call the ministry is First Steps Discipleship. It's for new and renewed believers. And of course, uh, from watching and observing young Christians grow in Christ, and again, when I became a Christian, that's all I did was work with new believers. And so I was able to be in an observational point of view where I was living with them, teaching them, hearing their experiences. And so the material began to be developed back then. And Integrity Relationships was one of those pieces of it. And so everything came together into what we call First Steps Conversations Discipleship now. And we are using that material to train others in disciple making. I said on the notes I sent you, you know, if you got 20 different people giving an answer to the question, what is discipleship, you get 20 different answers. Uh, I think, you yeah. know, I'm a fan of uh, our friend and, and the former founder of, of our ministry, The Gathering. John Tolson breaks it down into three types of people. It's a person who's a follower of Jesus, a learner, and a reproducer. What is your best working definition of, let's say, discipler? Yeah, um, and of course, I violate all group rules of definition when I say the best definition of disciple making is a disciple 
discipler discipling disciplers. Mm. In other words, uh, somebody who is passionate about Jesus that is not only discipling somebody, but also encouraging them to disciple others. So it's the discipler discipling disciplers. I, I think that is so important. Coming back to one question, Jeff, that's one of the big problems with discipleship is that nobody can define it. Yeah. And and there, that is true, but it's also false. And unless you understand the distinction, that's one of the reasons why discipleship doesn't work. There's two types of discipleship. There's foundational discipleship and formational discipleship. Foundational discipleship is what happens in the first three months, and it is easily defined. It's the same thing. All new believers go through the same experiences. And so you can devise a disciple-making program that gives the foundation in the first three months. And then there's formational discipleship that happens after that. And whereas foundational discipleship is the same for everyone, formational discipleship is different for everyone. And so when people say there's many ways to disciple or you can't define it, they're more or less talking about formational discipleship. But with foundational discipleship, you say, sure, it's easy to define. I want you to be discipled, and then I want you to disciple somebody else. That's that's easy. And it's also something that can be tested. You could ask the person, you know, have you been discipled? Or are you discipling somebody else? Because if you're going to be uh, obedient to the Great Commission, you know, you can easily say yes or no to those questions. I am being obedient to the Great Commission. I'm doing what Jesus wants me to. I'm discipling somebody. And those that I disciple, I'm encouraging them to disciple somebody else. And by the way, here's the material that you can use for successful discipling. You're way more experienced in this than I am. Is one of the potential problems we have is not be able to come around that word and really agree to it. There's a guy that I know you've gotten to know, Bobby Harrington, who does discipleship.org. Right. Mm-hmm. There's guys like, is it Bill Hall, Todd Wilson, Justin Gravitt, John Tolson, all guys that you know people have heard about or whatever can look at books on Amazon or wherever else. But can there be a little bit of ego that maybe gets in there that makes people say, well, it's got to be this or it's got to be that, and maybe not be able to come around a common theme where people can agree and say, okay, discipleship, here it is, let's go do it. Well, yeah, I I don't know whether I want to accuse anybody of having an ego. I know some of the people that you're talking about, and they're all humble servants of the Lord. Sure, I've had personal conversations with them. They're all very gracious. Any discipling is better than no discipling. And so I, I'm not really being critical. I'm what I'm saying is that I was in a I was in a place where few people were in my formative years where I was only dealing with non-Christians or new Christians. And so I had to learn how to disciple or I couldn't exist in the ministry. And these are the things that I've learned, and I know that they work. And one of the distinctions I learned to make very early on is that new believers need something different than older believers. And so you have to approach foundational discipleship in a different manner. It really is no different than a newborn baby. You know, a newborn baby, whether they're in Italy, Russia, or America, have the same developmental issues. But once they get into teenage years, They all speak a different language and they have different cultures, but the foundation is still the same. I mean, if I'm a pastor and somebody else is a rocket science and a a doctor, we have the same foundation, but our formation as a pastor, rocket science and a doctor is different. And once we begin understanding that we have to do foundational discipleship first, and then that gives us a basis upon which we can hear our calling through which comes our formational discipleship, understanding that enables the church to say, okay, now we can really focus the individuals 
in our current congregations in a plan of disciple making that they can all do because it's foundational. And so it becomes very simple. It becomes very pointed. It also becomes something that you can that you can uh, kind of number, you might say. You can have analytics on it to see your success. Yeah. Well, and just just so we're clear for you and for me, the people I mentioned by name are people who are known in the world of discipleship. They've had great impact. They're effective. You know, we applaud. I applaud. I know for sure all those people doing what they're doing because they're making a kingdom difference. I'm curious with Amen. you, Grant. Do you feel like part of what has helped keep you sharp and keep you effective over the years is, and I know this because I know you pretty well, you've stayed engaged in a non-Christian world. You, you're, you've you been a landlord many times over, so you've got people all over the map who have, have lived in apartments and homes that you've been a landlord for. You've always been tied to the business community. Has that given you an edge that maybe a lot of pastors can maybe tend to fall into a little bit of a trap of their ministry is only at their local church? Where has that kept you sharp and fresh going into this stage of life? I don't know whether it was the business world, although I do think, you know, being involved in the business world as type of second career has given me an understanding into what the businessmen that I associated with in the local church, what they were going through. But I began doing missions in 1990. And of course, until that time, I'd always told people I didn't want to travel. And I began doing short-term mission trips in 1990. I think I've been on close to 90 to 100 short-term mission trips in that time frame. Most of it's been about disciple-making. Uh, but I started going to Russia in the early 1990s, and I think I've been in Russia 60 times. But uh, I think what really has kept me sharpened more than anything is that the Great Commission says, go into all the earth. And uh, man, when you get out there and see what God's doing, and you're obedient to the Great Commission, because I think that because of today, with our ability to travel, I, I don't think we should get isolated. I think all of us should be aware of what God's doing in this world, and that helps us give, you know, that, that worldwide perspective helps us learn and stay sharp where we are in our local ministries. Mm. A lot of times I've heard people say things like, well, why do you want to go to Russia? There's so many people that are lost and and need Jesus in Springfield. Well, I agree with that. The first part of that answer is, I don't get to choose where God sends me. The second part of that answer is, I have found myself far more effective. I, I was in a ministry successfully for 49 years in one location. Most people don't last that long. I don't know whether I would have lasted that long. I would have gotten burned out if I didn't have the greater perspective and, and influence from just traveling around the world and being encouraged sure. and working with other Christians. That makes sense. All right, Grant, yeah. so we would be failing miserably for people who know this show if we did not do the rapid five, which are kind of five silly, goofy, we get a little sideways, but they're quick-hitting questions. So first off— Rapid five. Rapid you know, five. Are these questions I'm to ask you? No, no. These are ones I ask you. So, Grant, oh, what is okay. your favorite childhood <clears throat> snack or cereal? My favorite childhood snack or, or cereal? Yes. Uh, I didn't eat— I didn't have cereal too much when I was growing up. I had pancakes, Jeff. Grant, are you kidding me? That's the best answer you can come up with right there. I would think you'd be way better uh, yeah, than that. Yeah, I know. I know it's boring. Let's let's go on to something Cocoa else. Cocoa Puffs, okay. Rice Krispies ne never entered the, the uh, radar for you there? Yeah, okay. Now come to think about it, uh, pancakes with Rice Krispies were, that was a... That was a good meal there. Okay. I thought maybe you might even say, like, uh, I think we talked about this in a previous episode with somebody, Vienna Sausages. 
Yeah, yeah. I have not. Nope. We're a part of my childhood. Okay. We're going to have to do some discipleship on the side here, me and you. What is yeah. your favorite book you most want to gift or have gifted to other people? I would probably uh, go with Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And uh, another book would be Watch Beneath Sit, Walk, Stand. And another would be Francis Schaeffer, Escape from Reason. All those are older books, and uh, but they were so formational in my life that I would really encourage all all new all Christians to read them. Yeah, those are books and things I've heard you talk about from the time I started going to the church. I remember in my first probably three or four years of the church, I'm like, does Grant ever have a sermon where he doesn't mention Corey Tenboom? Yeah, I forgot <laughs> the Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom. Yeah, you know exactly. Yeah, a great a, a great uh, traveler for the Lord. You there know. There you go. So anyway, so you like to go to South Carolina over the years. I know that's been a vacation spot for you and Barb, kids, I think probably now grandkids. So you are heading there in the car, you and Barb. You're, you're being a great parents and grandparents you are. You're getting ready to stop for lunch, and we're going to pretend this third restaurant is on the radar here, and you have to stop sooner than you planned because somebody had to go to the bathroom or there was traffic or whatever, and you're like, we're not going any further. We're stopping right here. And the exit sign had McDonald's. Chick-fil-A, and we're going to pretend the West Coast brings it out east in and out burger. Where does Team Edwards go? Uh, we're going to McDonald's. Wow. Most people don't say that. Why McDonald's? Well, uh, when you have grandkids, and I hope there's nobody from Chick-fil-A listening to this, <laughs> uh, it's about uh, 50% cheaper. Well, And also, uh, the kids... You know, when they're grandkids, they really don't have the senses. Their yeah. their taste buds really can't tell a difference. Yeah. Well, hopefully, Grant, you're using an app because McDonald's does have some good discounts on the app. So I hope so. Yeah. yeah. All right. What's the movie, whether you're solo or you're with Barb, what is the movie that if you stumble across it, it pulls you in every time? Uh, how about a TV series, Foils War? What? I've never even heard of that. What is it? You've never heard of that? No. Oh, man. Uh, it's a, it's a series, and some people list it as one of the best World War II era mo uh, movies or series ever produced. It's it's wonderful. I could see that over and over wow. again. I'll have to check board. it out. Now, here's yeah. the one I'm really dying to hear from you. Who was your first celebrity crush? My first celebrity crush. Yep. Uh, I I I have to be honest with you, Jeff. I'm I'm boring. And my first real crush in my life is my wife. You know, she was the, she was the one. I mean, I still remember the first time I saw her, I, I couldn't think for a while. Wow. You know, she wasn't a, and it really, uh, really created a, a difficult situation because she wasn't a believer and I had made a commitment that I would not date unbelievers. And so our first date, which wasn't a date was a Bible study. And, uh, I actually led her to the Lord, and when she accepted Jesus, that night she was baptized, and after she accepted Jesus, and after she was baptized is when I told her I'd like to start dating her. Wow. So, I mean, that was how it all got started. Well, I got to say this, you know, there was people who knew this podcast was happening today, and the, the, the going joke was, will you be able to keep Grant on script? 
And I've had a little texting oh. going on while we're here. I said, well, he's done better than I thought, but he does know how to take questions where he wants to go. And we're going to get you to answer this. We're going to get you to answer the celebrity crush off air, on air, somewhere. We got to get you. I know. That. You are too funny. All right, Chris. I so, just avoid I just avoided your I just avoided your question. You, you've done that a couple times. You've got a couple questions on me that you've been able to avoid. So let mm-hmm. me ask you this. So in the world of discipleship, in the world of longtime ministry, books, what have you. Obviously, Tim Keller passed away recently. What, right. what do you think of when you think about Tim Keller? I'm sure pastoring as long as you have and doing the things you've done, you've written, you've now been writing almost a thousand daily devotionals. What What do you uh, think when you think about Tim Keller, him leaving, joining Jesus, who he so desperately wanted to see? How's that impacted you? And what's his legacy? Tim Keller has a unique legacy. I've read, I think, all of his books and look forward to his books coming out. And so when someone is taken home to be with Jesus, I think there's a sense of everything that he lived for, everything that he wrote about, he's now seen, you know, he's experiencing. And there's always a sense of joy when someone passes into eternity. I also, and that's true with everybody, but there's also a sense of loss because you know, how do you play, how do you replace a Tim Keller? I mean, God raises up certain people in generations and each generation that has uh, exponential more influence and impact than, than the rest of us. And Tim Keller was one of those. And uh, so honor to whom honor is due. Um, he has impacted many and he has left a legacy. I find that, that so many of the celebrity uh, pastors, and we don't need to name names that I've actually followed and listened to, have stumbled and and brought disrespect on the name of Jesus. And that never happened with, with Tim Keller. And those of us who've read his books, we understood that the in-depth spirituality that he had and the connectivity that he had even with his wife, we understand why. He actually did know Jesus, and Jesus was the love of his life. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. There was uh, one of our gathering small groups, we call them locker rooms, and my daytime job right. of connecting men to men and men to God, one of the guys sent out yesterday, or I think it was yesterday, one of his old sermons, and he didn't even know who Tim Keller was. He just stumbled across this great sermon, and I let everybody know, hey, he passed away on Friday, blah, 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 blah. One of the things that's really interesting, I don't remember how much I've seen him preach, but the way he used notes was so random. It was like, he, he kind of knows his message, but then he would randomly look at sheets of paper and shuffle them while he was going through it. I'm like, really? I didn't expect that type of thing. I mean, it, it, you're like, you're way more organized hearing you preach and seeing you preach than what Tim Keller was, but the tributes that are out there, I posted a bunch of them on social media. Was it yesterday or two days ago? I mean, just unbelievable tributes to the man, to the legacy, to, you know, what he did and who he's been in American Christianity, certainly. If Barb is sitting here, your wife, your wife of many, many years, photographer, Pokemon lover, she's been engaged with you in ministry, serving with you for a long time. If I were to ask Barb, what three words best describe Grant? What would Barb say? I think that she would, first of all, say faithful. I think that she would say that I have a unique sense of humor. And also, uh, she would probably say that I can be driven and a little impatient from time to time. Wow. And would you say that that's pretty accurate, I'm going to guess? Yes. My wife probably... (laughs) 
knows me, my, I won't say probably my wife knows me better than I know myself. Yeah. Well, that's true for most guys. If they've been married any length of time. I know my wife would fall into that category for me. So Grant, and by the way, I do know your wife, Kara, uh, Jeff, and I know that she probably has the same discernment about you. Uh, she probably would not add anything about being funny though. She might drop that from the list. So speaking of funny, I like to ask these four kind of emotional questions and I want to get these with you, Grant. What makes you laugh these days? What makes me laugh? Well, of course the grandkids, you know, there's so much humor in life. Uh, I, I guess there's a sad undertone to that because, uh, towards the end of my ministry, I was, I was working with a lot of people who had no family. And uh, I just, they were so isolated because of their life decisions. Uh, sometimes it was their fault. Sometimes it wasn't. And uh, man, I was just sitting there thinking, uh, who would want to miss the joy of laughing with their grandkids when they get older? Yeah. It's been fun running into you a couple of times when you've been taking one of them out to lunch at like typically Wendy's. I know you're a big Wendy's guy, as am I. And, and uh, it's, it's fun to see you uh, being a grandfather in those settings. So can I, can I share a grandfather story with you real quick? Please. I have a grandson, Jess, and I had, of course, son-in-law, Chris, and Jess has become quite a good basketball player. So last week, Jess was looking at his father, Chris, and said, hey, Dad, how about if I go into the neighbor's yard and shoot blind over their six-foot-tall wood fence over top of the back of my, uh, my basketball, over, over, the, over the basketball backboard, and it goes through. How much money will you give me? And Chris said $100. Oh, gee. <laughs> so you know where this is going, don't you? I, I think yeah. I think Chris lost 100 bucks last week. Yeah, yeah. Over over the over the fence, over the backboard, nothing but net. And uh and Jess has now been trying to figure out how he's going to spend $100. Well, maybe he's maybe he should get four other guys and start Dude Perfect 2 or something like that, but I think so. That's yeah. A great, I'm uh -huh. glad you shared that story. It's a great story. And by the way, if you ask me on here if you can or can't do something, does it really yeah. matter? Because you're going to do it anyway, right? Well, you know, it makes me feel better. <laughs> uh, so, Grant, what makes you sad these days? Uh, I think what makes me sad is that uh, people have anxiety and fear. I think the spirit of the age is anxiety and fear. And I have really found hope and peace in Jesus, and I think it comes from his presence. And so when I listen to people talk about anxiety and fear, in the back of my mind, I, I realize, and I'll say this very cautiously, that it's it's a cycle that they can't break out of. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to say that that there is hope and that God is able by seeking first his kingdom to set you free into peace. I, I think that that spirit of the age that gives people confusion and despair and discouragement is is what brings sadness to my life. Sure. What makes you angry these days? Well, um, and again, this could be controversial, but um, I, I, what makes me angry these days is that the the gender issues, especially with young children, um, you know, I think that children and gender is from the image of God, and uh, God looked at creation the way he made it, including male and female, he created them, and at the very end of that, he says, and this is good. So when we challenge that, we are challenging the goodness of God. 
And once you challenge the goodness of God and get away with it, then evil becomes good and good evil. And that's what's happening today. Yeah, very well said. Lastly, what makes you full of hope? What makes me full of hope? Well, Jesus is still alive and uh, the resurrection happened. And, you know, I'm getting to the age where I'm saying goodbye to some of my friends who I have passed on or getting to that point, And I know that I will see them again. The other thing that gives me hope is that I believe that there's going to be a Latter-day revival. And whereas most revivals throughout history have lost 80% of those who accepted Jesus, I think there's such a move and wave of disciple making throughout our world that when the next revival comes, there's going to be 80% that stay faithful and only 20% that walk away. Wow. There's there's some encouragement out to say the least. So Grant, if a person hears this and either as an individual or through their church or through a parachurch ministry, want connected to you and discipling another, tell them how they go about that. Well, again, www.disciplinganother.com and uh, you can get all the information that you need grantedwardsauthor.com, all the uh, information that you need. My blog's on grantedwardsauthor.com, and also uh, connect with me, contact us. Uh, The books that I've written are all on www.disciplinganother.com. Amen. Well, Grant, it's been a joy. There's plenty we did not get through, so we might have to make a part two in time and come back and regather some thoughts here. So thanks for being pretty kind. Thanks for being uh, somewhat sticking to the script. I won't say fully, yeah. but somewhat. Well, you know, we do believe in a God of miracles, don't we, Jeff? <laughs> uh, on many levels, we've uh, confirmed that today. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, it it really was fun being with you. Amen. It was good. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.